We are looking at the seventh plague, Exodus 9, second book of your Bible, all hail breaks loose. Exodus 9. We will have communion after the service as well, so I'm hoping that you all have the elements. And uh, we're going to pick up the account of Exodus 9 in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, Exodus 9, 13, and stand before Pharaoh, probably again at the Nile River, and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. The purpose of God's demand is that they might worship and serve him, that they would get to know him, that they would worship him in spirit and in truth. For this time I will send, notice, all my plagues on you. If you have a New King James, it says, to your very heart and your servants and your people so that you may know there's a purpose behind what God is doing, that there is no one like me in all the earth. Bible students, it's important to note the word all because you're gonna see there's an emphasis on this section. This is the longest plague section that we have in our Bibles, the plague of hail. This is the first time that we know for sure there was human death. And there's a warning that God issues. And he says, this time, if you have an NIV, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Now, Egypt was certainly uh, immersed with all these gods and goddesses. They had perhaps thousands of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And one of the purposes of the plagues, God says, is that the people of Egypt would know that there is no one like the Lord. There is no God like him. He is the God above all gods with a small g. The Egyptians worshipped a myriad of idols. They had a pantheon of gods and goddesses, but they were nothing. They were false. They were made up. They did not exist. And if there was any power behind them, it would be demonic power. But there is no one like the God of the Bible. The word all, everything is K-O-L in Hebrew, transliterated. It appears 12 times in the narration of the seventh plague. Even the word plague is plural. I will send all my plagues. There is an intensity, a pervasiveness about this plague that separates it from its predecessors. This plague of hail will get the longest treatment, but more plagues are ahead because we are going to meet locusts, darkness, and finally death before the people of Israel go free from the land of Egypt. It is interesting to note that in the New King James, it says, all my plagues will go to Pharaoh's very heart. And there's a Hebrew word here for heart. It's a single word. And, and uh, the Pharaoh's heart is at the core of a lot of what we will deal with today. So you could call this the hail and the hardening of the heart. And in some ways, the, the hail, cold, uh, hard, and causing damage, and if you've ever seen pictures of hail storms in certain areas, they can cause some serious damage, is a picture of Pharaoh's heart. Hard, callous, cold. Uh, not only is he damaging himself, but he's damaging his people. But he is becoming also a tool by which God will make his name and his uniqueness known. Great damage and death are coming to Egypt, and here's the question, what will Egypt do when all hail breaks loose. And I thought about that title for a while. Should I use it, Lord? And I got multiple confirmations that we were on the right track. And I will tell you that in the last year, I don't mean to beat this drum, but it does seem like all hail has broken loose. And it's been interesting to watch people respond to it. Because as we read our Bibles, we know that even though this has been maybe as bad as we've ever experienced in terms of just the world and what it's gone through, certainly the world has experienced difficult times. And as we read our Bibles, there's certainly a last days scenario that is more difficult than this. 
And some of these plagues come up again or are mirrored in the book of Revelation. We don't want to miss the fact that God says that you may know that there's no one like me. God is making sure that people understand his uniqueness, that he is God. He alone is God. Psalm 78, 47 through 50 says, as Israel recounted the plagues in their songs and at Passover, God destroyed their vines, Psalm 78, 47, with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hailstones and their, he- their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague. Psalm 78, 47 through 50. And God says to Pharaoh through Moses, For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. NIV says, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with the plague that would have wiped you off of the face of the earth. And so God says through Moses that if I gave you your just desserts, if I gave you what you really deserved in the time that you really deserved it, you should have been gone already. I could have wiped you out long ago, Pharaoh. And it would have been right. It would have been perhaps even normal procedure for me to judge you on the spot for the way that you have treated my people the way that you have enslaved my people, tried to kill the Hebrew baby boys, tried to uh, cause the destruction of my people or hold them in bondage. I could have wiped you out. And there is a sense of divine restraint here. Scholars say God is saying, I have held back what I could have done. And it seems to me that this principle does apply throughout the scriptures because God is patient. He doesn't give us what we deserve in the moment we deserve it because if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be standing here right now. Amen? God is patient. He's not wishing or willing that any perish, but what? All come to repentance. The Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. He's patient. And thank God that he's patient because some of you became Christians in the last year and some of you in the last five or 10 years. And even if it was the 70s or 80s or 90s or 60s or whatever it was, still, had Jesus come earlier, you wouldn't be in the kingdom. Had he not been gracious to you and me, I wouldn't be in the kingdom. And so this is not so much announcing what God is going to do, but what he could have done had he judged Pharaoh for what he deserved. And thank God that God is merciful. But indeed, for this cause, now here's the explanation I have allowed you to remain, you could say, I've not judged you fully yet. In order, here's the reason, to show you my power. And there's evangelistic purposes here to proclaim my name, noted Bible students, through all the earth. There's that word all again. Still, yet still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, there's something that we need to note here that God has allowed the Pharaoh to remain. He hasn't judged him fully, at least not yet, to show two things. My power, to make that clear, and that has been clear and it will continue to be, and to proclaim my name. There's a proclamation of God's name throughout all the earth. You could say God's glorious name. Later in the book of Joshua, we will hear that people in the caravans and in other nations have heard about the God of Israel. They've heard about his plagues. They've heard about the parting of the Red Sea. They've heard about the drowning of the Egyptian army in the sea. This has become known in the caravans and known to other nations. And one of God's uh, purposes, and this has been called like a proto-evangel, Uh, that is a purpose of evangelism or to get the evangelism out, is to make his name known throughout all the earth. This is why we have missionaries, to make God's name known throughout all the earth. This is why we evangelize. This is why Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Pharaoh's been allowed to remain for God's power 
and the proclamation of God's name. There is one true and living God. He is in control. He alone judges, and he alone can save. Now, what we are going to see, and this is something that we've been kind of hinting at for a while, is that Paul picks up this idea of allowing the Pharaoh to remain in Romans chapter 9. So would you hold your place in the book of Exodus? Go all the way to Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter 9. Chapters 9 through 11 in Romans are a treatment of what happened to Israel. Paul opens up with a lament and a prayer in Romans 9. He says that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief for his kinsmen. This is Romans 9, 1 through 5. Israelites, they have the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah Christ according to the flesh, whose overall God bless forever, amen. But what happened to the people of God? Why is it that so many Israelites or Jews, if you will, do not know the Messiah? And we find out later in Romans 9, 10, and 11, namely chapter 11, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Now, here's the rub, here's the controversy, here's the question. With Israel, was it that God caused the hardening and unreceptiveness to the Messiah? Was it their own free will? Was it a combination of both? That's the question. And that's what people wrestle with. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 ultimately is seeking to answer that question. Why is it that more of Israel has not trusted in the Messiah? How could it be that Jesus would come to his own, but many of his own would not receive him? But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name. Why is it that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not jumping up and down the moment they heard that he opened the eyes of the blind or healed a leper or unstopped deaf ears? Why is it that they did not flock to Christ? Because they had other plans. Because there was power and position at risk. Because maybe there was an understanding of what the Messiah would accomplish and how he would look and what he would say and what he would do. That didn't fit with their perspective. And so the, le the leadership largely rejected him. And the people, even who lauded him as he came in on Palm Sunday, then, you know, joined as they had been spurred on by the leadership saying, crucify him. And Paul says these words. Look at Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. And I want you to notice that the main emphasis is on God's mercy, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, and this is in our text now, we just read it, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power. Paul's quoting from the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the Greek version. To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And so we could go on there, but I want you to see that Paul has picked up this theological uh, reality of God's sovereignty. And it's been sometimes called God's sovereignty in election. And one thing that we will note here is that as we've watched the Pharaoh, we have seen that God said in Exodus 3.19, early on to Moses, that the Pharaoh is stubborn. 
He's going to resist. He is not going to let the people go. And so I'm going to do these plagues. And I'm going to read something helpful from a commentator named Stuart. He says, the irony of God's abrading of Pharaoh in verse 17 is that Pharaoh could not help himself any longer and yet well deserved the criticism he received that he was boastful and prideful back in our text. It was both his natural inclination to keep the Israelites suppressed and localized and the attitude subsequently fixed in him by God as a humiliation and punishment. Pharaoh's behavior mirrors the phenomenon described by Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 32. That of people being fixed by God in the sinful behavior patterns that would eventually bring about their destruction as a punishment for those very behavior patterns captured in the words God gave them over. I think at least three times in Romans 8, 1, 18 through 32, God gave them over, God gave them over. In other words, one of the ways God punishes sin is to allow the sin to continue and therefore allow it to take its natural destructive course. Behind this is the biblical truth, says Stuart, that people cannot rescue themselves from their own sin. They will always need help to break the patterns of sin in their lives. Pharaoh had long ago set himself against God's people and would not let them go. And he was still doing the same. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart making him remain stubborn, serves as a punishment, although the action itself by Pharaoh is also called a sin. Back to Exodus. Now, I know that this is some tough sledding probably for all of our minds to try to understand the, where human will and God's sovereignty intersect with these realities. What I will say is that From my perspective, here's what I can tell you, generally speaking. God has given us free will. For example, when we are called on to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that that is a genuine call that God is calling us from our will to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. I will say this, though, that the aggressor in the equation, in my view, if we were to take a pie and we were to say what part of the pie is man's, it would be a small sliver of the pie, a small piece, if you will. But I still think that man has a piece of the pie. God is the aggressor in the equation. Without his grace and mercy, we would never respond to the gospel. We would never come to him. Yet we are called to believe. We are called not to resist the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, to be willing to turn our lives over to his lordship. And it is more than just trusting Jesus as your savior and getting an insurance policy for heaven. Amen? It's about following him as Lord. How many times did Jesus say to people in his ministry these two words, follow me? And not everybody did. The rich young ruler walked away and Jesus let him go. And said these words, how difficult is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why difficult? Because his riches had become his God, small g. This is the reality of the fact that God is sovereign and no one's going to come unless the Father draws them or calls them. And yet at the same time, there is a piece of the pie that certainly belongs to your will. And if you resist him and you won't follow him or you decide to follow him with 10%, 20%, 30% of your life, then that's what you're gonna do. And that's how you will live and that's how you will die. Now, God can get our attention, no doubt, amen? (laughs) And you know, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray. We can talk to Jonah when you all get to heaven and Jonah will tell you about how God can custom design fish to get you on board with his program. You all heard the girl who, you know, went out to witness and she was a brand new Christian and she met this very strong, opinionated atheist. And she said, sir, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the atheist said, what about this? What about evolution? What about this? And how can you Christians believe that story about Jonah? being in the belly of a whale or a great fish three days and three nights. How can you believe that? 
She said, well, sir, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll just ask Jonah how it happened and he'll tell me. And the atheist said, what if Jonah's in hell? And she said, well, then you can ask him. And I want you to see, Bible students, back in Exodus 9, that again, we are told that Pharaoh still, God speaking to him, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. There is a self-exaltation in the Pharaoh, a pride, which has been called the mother of all sins, that keeps him entrenched in him fighting against God. And if we were to take one sin and say, what is it that keeps people away? Uh, however it all walks itself out, pride would be that sin, amen? I will not submit myself to Christ. I will not, uh, you know, become a Christian. I will not, you know, we, we dig our heels in and we sing with Frankie, I did it my way. And this is what people do. And the Pharaoh was doing this. His pride was not given to him by God. The pride was from his flesh. He refused to humble himself before God. And so we might say God had wonderful plans for the Pharaoh. Jeremiah 29, 11, in a funny kind of sense. <laughs> You're gonna resist my will? Okay, I got plans for you. You will become one way that I make my name known throughout all the earth, even through your rebellion. God can use whatever he decides to use. So behold, about this time tomorrow, we're about to get God's forecast. I will send a very heavy, the word heavy, kabed in Hebrew, is used of Pharaoh's heart in other places. I will send a very heavy hail. I mentioned to you when we opened the text that the plagues would go to Pharaoh's heart perhaps to confirm his heaviness of heart. I'm gonna send a very heavy, hard hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt, verse 18, Exodus 9, from the day it was founded until now. Egypt, in my understanding, is essentially a land of a little bit of rain, but now hail is coming. This would be like a blizzard hitting San Diego for a week straight. It would be quite unusual to have in a desert region like this, hail come down and in such a heavy, uh, terrible way. This is a hail storm. You could say the hail is a coming. And whenever pharaohs wanted to boast about something that they accomplished in their leadership, they would say that they were doing more than all things that were done in the country since it was founded. So this is a bit of uh, irony here, okay? Well, we'll put this on your record, Pharaoh. You're going to have a hailstorm like has never been seen in Egypt since it was founded. That'll be on your record. Now, therefore, send, give an order, bring your livestock, whatever you have in the field to safety. Tomorrow the hail's coming, so warn your people. Every man and beast, middle of 19, that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. Now a proclamation. If you don't seek refuge, people and animals are going to die. You've got 24 hours. God's grace and mercy is here. Run for shelter or die. Heed the warning or die. The New Living Translation says, quick, order your livestock and servants to come in from the fields and to find shelter. Any person or animal left outside will die when the hail falls. Sound the siren. Send the pamphlets. And it's interesting to me that the Pharaoh apparently did this. As stubborn and hard-hearted as he was, word went out to the people of Egypt. And I don't know if Pharaoh's officials convinced him. Maybe he was sitting on his throne and he said, Ah, Moses, you know, go take a hike. I'm sick of hearing from you. And we're going to hear Pharaoh say that later. But somehow... The word went out to the people. Hail's coming tomorrow according to the God of Moses. And so here's a warning. It went out on the news. <laughs> you know how uh, we hear of Israel dropping pamphlets uh, on areas before they bomb places? Something like this, right? It went out. It was a warning. The hail is a coming. Take shelter. Now, God has made good on every promise so far, amen? Amen. <laughs> 
And since Pharaoh lives beyond the seventh plague, guess what he did? <laughs> he stayed inside. So for all his unbelief and hardening or whatever you want to call it, he heeded the forecast. And there was going to be hail to pay. I will just say that. Now, many of the Egyptians' gods and goddesses were personified in the elements of nature. Shu was the god of the atmosphere who held up the heavens. Nut was the sky goddess who represented the vaulting sky. Tefnut was a drill. No, just kidding. Was a, you, are you guys awake? Are these jokes really that bad? Anyway. <laughs> Tefnut was the goddess of moisture. Seth was present in the wind and storm. The Egyptians believed that storms came from the gods, so this would really have their attention. We're going to learn about uh, the newts and bolts of this, so just hang on. I, just, I prepared you a little bit for that one. This plague was also directed against Isis, sometimes represented as cow-headed. She was the goddess of fertility and considered the goddess of the air. She was the mythical daughter of Set and Newt, the sister and wife of Osiris, and the mother of Horus. So this family of gods and goddesses, gods and goddesses were supposed to be in control of all this. But what do you do when all hail breaks loose? And no matter what you do, no matter who you call upon, it ain't stopping. Now the 120, notice the warning went out, the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared not God, but the word of the Lord, the warning, if you will, made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. You could say they trembled at the warning, at the word. But category number two, he who paid no regard, no attention, ignored the word of the Lord, left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the warning went out. The record is clear. The God of Israel has shown his mighty power. And some of the people said, there's been a warning, take shelter. And other people said, I don't want to, and this was probably early in the year harvest time, as we will see in a moment. I don't want to risk a day of work, uh, the proceeds we can get from the field. I don't worry about it. It shouldn't be a big deal. <laughs> Go ahead and go out and work. Take the animals. Go ahead. Now, isn't it interesting that we're seeing that this is servants that are being sent out? So you go ahead. Go ahead and work in the field. I don't think the heavy stuff's coming down for quite a while. It'll be fine. And the people who did not heed the word of God were out there. And the hail came. And it's been said that we never sin in a vacuum. Our decisions, our responses oftentimes put others in vulnerable positions. Not always. There were people who heeded the warning and they were safe. There were people who paid no regard to the warning and they perished. The wording is careful here that they feared the word or warning. It doesn't say they feared the Lord because had they feared the Lord, that would be like a salvation uh, verse. And let's talk about what saving faith actually is. Some years ago, I had a friend that I worked with many years ago. This is in the 90s. I was at a printing company and I was in sales. He was as well. And I was studying a lot of eschatology at the time and we started talking and he wasn't a believer to my knowledge. And I had given him a gospel tract that it was interesting to me because he always left that gospel tract on his desk although it was clear to me that he was not living for the Lord. And he would ask me at least once a week after we talked about some eschatology, so if this happens, this is what I should do, right? And if this happens, this is what I should do, right? And he was very intrigued and always asking me questions, yet he didn't want to live for the Lord, but he certainly wanted the escape hatch should these things begin to unfold, kind of last day's scenario. Isn't it interesting how people respond sometimes? I've watched people visibly respond to the word of God in ways that seemed to demonstrate that something was happening in their heart, but then they hardened their heart again. I've watched people sometimes in the moment at a memorial service begin to soften to the gospel only to go back to their normal lives and pay no attention. Now the Lord said to Moses 22, stretch out your hand toward the sky 
that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire. If you have uh, NIV, it says lightning, and that's probably correct. And it ran down to the earth. If you have New King James, it says fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And it was literally great balls of fire coming down to the earth. In Cecil B. DeMille's treatment of it, uh, Yule Brenner is standing on a patio, and as the hail begins to descend and hit the ground, fire uh, kind of moves out as the hail hits the ground. And it's a bit of an irony, right? You have cold hail, and then you have fire. And the word for fire is ish in Hebrew, and it is literal fire used to describe theophany, the appearance of God in mighty power, to deal with the fire of cleansing, the fire of sacrifice. So it is the word for fire, but many believe that from parallel passages and just kind of reading between the lines here that lightning was coming down constantly within the hail. Either way, it was scary. Either way, it was something that probably had not been seen in the land of Egypt. Maybe never or perhaps for a long, long time. Psalm 18 says of God, the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Psalm 18, 13 and 14. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. Oftentimes the storm is an image of God's power and presence and judgment. Fire is often a sign of judgment. When God comes down on Sinai in Exodus 19, which is ahead of us, he will manifest in storm and fire and whirlwind. So this is certainly both a real judgment that hits Egypt, but it's also a picture of the power of God and that God is in control of the natural elements and so forth. And for whatever reason, pragmatic or so forth, some people ignored the warning and sent their servants out there. In 1888, a hailstorm killed 240 people and wounded hundreds more in India. A single hailstorm killed or injured 400 people in Germany in 1984. And a storm in China's Hainan province killed 22 people and injured 200 on July 22, 2002. I was going to throw some pictures up here for you, but I think you all probably can go and search it later. Uh, the devastation caused by hail. Uh, even Lori showed me some pictures from a family member in Wyoming uh, where their car had uh, multiple you know, uh, indentations from hail that broken the windshield and all of that. So we know, and we've had a few snapshots here in Southern California. <laughs> Whenever we get even a, a glimpse of it, we're like, oh, wow, what is it? I've never seen that before. Right? Do you guys remember when uh, it snowed up in South Corona uh, not that long ago? And we went out there. I was like a little kid out there. Wee, is it snow? Anyway, kind of an ugly scene. But anyway, Psalm 105, 32 and 33 says, the Lord gave hail for rain and flaming fire in their land, recounting the plague. Psalm 105, 32, 33. He struck down their vines and also their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. Egypt was shattered. Now hold your place and go all the way to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Just a couple of cross references here that are really interesting. So when we get to Revelation chapter 8, we are looking at the trumpet judgments. And this would be certainly that which is destined for the unbelieving world, not for the church. And here's, uh, it's the breaking of the seventh seal, Revelation 8.1, and a anticipatory silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, Revelation 8.6, prepared to sound them. And the first sounded, and notice, there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And there were thrown to the earth a third of the earth 
was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. You can see a third, a third, a third. Go to Revelation 16. Revelation 16. Take a look. This is the gathering of the enemies of God um, at a place called Harmageddon. That's Revelation 16, 16. And we pick it up. It says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl. This is the bowl judgments now, Revelation 16, 17, upon the air. Notice the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake quake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. Early similar language to that which happened in Egypt. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great cry, the great city, excuse me, was split in three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, verse 20. Every island fled away, the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Back to Exodus. Very interesting connection. I was reading about weights of some of the biggest hail that's been experienced back to Exodus 9 and uh, the rate at which it falls and then the damage that it causes because of its hardness, weight, and then the rate of speed uh, by which it's falling. And what I read, and you, you may know, than I do, more, know, know more than I do, but two pounds seems to be like the bigger ones. Can you imagine... 100-pound hailstones falling. And what do people do in that bold judgment? They blaspheme God's name. They're just like the Pharaoh. Their hearts remain hard. And there are people, certainly Peter talks of them, who this whole concept of God's judgment to them is a joke. They think it's funny. Oh, you Christians believe that Jesus is coming back and there's going to be a last day's judgment. But watch people respond when something cataclysmic happens. You know where they often flock? To the church. Oh, yes, it's true. Prayer meetings swell. Sometimes you say, brother, I ain't, I ain't seen you in five years. I'm coming to the prayer meeting now. I'm getting spiritual. Right? People... And at least they know where to run when emergencies happen. But anymore in America, I'm starting to wonder if we'll even run to the church anymore. But there's a deep sense in us that God is just and that he will judge. And we think it's a pretty good idea when he's judging people we think deserve judgment. Amen? The bad guy who falls off the building at the end of the movie. Good for him. Good. Not me. I don't think I need that. I don't need any judgment, right? And notice there's a third category of the experience of the hail or lack, of, lack thereof. Only, Exodus 9:26. only in the land of Goshen where Israel lived, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Can you imagine? Looking over your fence into Egypt. Wow. Things, radical things happening. And you look above you, nothing. I'm glad I live in Goshen. That's what I would be saying. Thank God for Goshen. Thank God that I am in covenant with Yahweh. I'm not that great. I'm not that good. But somehow God has decided to love me and bring me into his covenant. And I've been sheltered from the hail. Yes. It's good. And it's a picture of the gospel. I'm grateful to be in covenant with God. And so predictably, Pharaoh sent for Moses, 27, and Aaron and said to them, oh, look at this. I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Okay, okay, uncle, uncle, auntie, what do I have to say? I'll say it. Enough of the hail. 
I've sinned. Throughout the Bible, we've seen people admit sin. We've seen the prodigal say, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. Judas said in Matthew 27, 4, Judas said, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. Was it genuine repentance for Judas? Jesus said of him, it would have been better for him had he never been born. But he said, I've sinned. It is possible, brethren, to be a serial apologist. Let me explain. You do something time and time again, and you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like the kids fight, and you say to the one sibling, say to your brother, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, you're not. You can mouth the words. Pharaoh did. I've sinned. Sounds theologically correct. Sounds humble. And like he's got some contrition going on. But Pharaoh's not going to repent. You know what he's sorry about? He's sorry about the hail. Because if he would have repented, the story would be completely different. Repentance is more than serial apologies. It's about your heart. It's about your mind. It's about your feet walking toward the Lord. There is a way to say, I blew it and I'm sorry as a deflection with no real intention of changing. Do that enough and the people around you will see right through you and it will become utterly hollow. Any repentance, says one writer, that does not lessen our impulse to commit the same sin again is not genuine repentance at all. And I know it's hard to hear. It was hard for me to write it. But I'll tell you this. If you get into the mode, and I'm not saying you shouldn't apologize, but if you get into the mode where your apologies become simply a way to get somebody off of your back, and you don't back it up with a renewed action, those people will stop believing you. And they'll know that your apologies mean nothing. How many times do you think God has heard in a given week, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I won't do it again. And then those people are right back in line doing the same thing. Oh God, help us. And he says, make supplication, pray to the Lord, 28, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. Enough is enough, I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. You ever seen someone who, you know, squares off with somebody and they're, they're looking tough. You're, oh, okay, yeah, you want to, and they get them on the ground. Oh, it's all right, it's all right. Uncle, 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 auntie, auntie, auntie. Oh, my arm, my arm. That's what the Pharaoh's doing right here. He's not repenting. He just wants to get out of the hail. And he knows he's getting reports that people are dying everywhere. Animals are going down. Crops are being ruined. Okay, okay, okay. This is going to affect our economy. It's about the economy. It's going to affect this and that. It's pragmatic. It's not repentance. But there is a way to say I'm sorry where it is genuine. The prodigal does come to the father and say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father, we know the story, is quick to forgive and throw a party. He knew that his son was broken. And Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. This is beautiful. When I spread out my hands, this is what I'm doing. I spread them out to the Lord. Amen? Now, some of you may not be at that point where you're ready to do this. I get it. You may be halfway, some of you. Some of you are halfway with a little circular motion. Some of you got to keep it right down here. This is your sweet spot, right down here. Because people on the rows behind me probably won't see that, right? Right here. I feel you. I remember when I first became a Christian, I went into a church that was singing out of a hymn book. And I was a rock and roll drummer. And it was turned to page 252 and how great the Lord. And... At first, I was like, these people have lost their collective minds. <laughs> and then, you know what happened to me? I was singing, how great. 
And you know what? I liked it. Because to me, it was different. It was moving my focus away from everything the world called important. I will spread out my hands. I'll go out of the city. Notice, Moses doesn't even have an umbrella. Apparently, the hail never even affected Moses. Wherever he walked, he was the opposite of Schleprock. You guys all remember Schleprock from the Flintstones? This is dating me, I know. But Schleprock, wherever he walked around, the storm was only over him. It's Schleprock. <laughs> it's always right over Schleprock. Poor dude. It's raining today. Everything else was sunny. <laughs> well, for Moses, it was sunny around him. So he says, I'm going to lift up my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be hail no longer. That what? You may know that the earth is the Lord's, not your false gods and goddesses. Do you know when people went up to Pharaoh, they thought he was a god, small g, of course. And people, when they went into Pharaoh's presence, had to grovel and proclaim his greatness. Literally, ancient writers say, as they ate the dust. So when you see depictions of people approaching Pharaoh from other nations, literally what they would do, and perhaps especially his citizens, is they would grovel, they would crawl on their hands and knees, and they had to proclaim Pharaoh's greatness as they ate the dirt, something like this. Oh, Pharaoh, wonderful and benevolent. Wonderful are you, oh, Pharaoh, great and mighty Pharaoh. Puh, puh, puh. I think this, this may be the first time Pharaoh ever had to say, I'm sorry. This may be the first time Pharaoh had to ever say, I've sinned. He was so used to people groveling before him, treating him as if he were a god. Maybe that's the problem. Our view of ourselves, <laughs> oftentimes we think we're the center of the universe. And so Moses lifts up his arms. It's an expression of his heart. And it's, I would say, symbolic of submission. When you raise up your hands to God, it's, it's a symbolic of surrender, submission, worship. I belong to you. But Moses says, when I do this, I know as for you and your servants that you do not yet fear the Lord God. I'm gonna pray and the hail's gonna stop. But I know that you don't fear the Lord. Because we've done this enough times. You know, Moses is starting to catch on, right? He knows what God has said, and I know you don't fear the Lord. Now, the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined. The locusts are going to get to them later, for they ripen late. Different views here, but according to Stuart, in Egypt, flax and barley were harvested in February, March, and wheat and spelt were harvested about a month later in March, April. This is an interesting timing insight because the Passover was about a month away from the seventh plague. So just as a side note for those of you who are interested, it would seem that each plague lasted about a week. And we're moving in to being just a little bit away from the Passover. What grows in the field early was ripped to shreds. What is not popped up through the soil was not damaged by the storm. But there was great damage to trees and the like shattered. And so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh. He spread out his hands to the Lord. The thunder and the hail ceased and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw, 34, that the rain and the hail and thunder had ceased, notice he sinned again. And hardened his heart, he and his servants. It wasn't just about Pharaoh's hard heart. It was about his servants as well. And the hardening of the heart here is called sin. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Once again, a little breathing room provided. And instead of repenting, Pharaoh sinned. He sinned yet again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. And so it all comes back to the heart, doesn't it? <laughs> and we can see what's happening with Pharaoh, and he digs his heels in once again. 
and God will continue to make his name known and his power known. Just a final thought on the hardening. Although God had hardened his heart after the previous plague, 9-12, Pharaoh hardened his own heart again. Divine hardening, says one writer, does not preclude the possibility of self-hardening down the road or making one's heart heavy again. And so I know by way of application that there are times when I just have to pray, Lord, soften my heart, amen? (laughs) Because it can be sometimes tough and heavy. Uh, We just learned from Psalm 119, Lord, enlarge my heart so that I can love with your love. We're uh, gonna take communion, so if you're a believer, we invite you to the Lord's table. Would you raise your hand if you don't have the elements? Anybody in need of elements? Y'all got them? There's one, one over here, maybe a couple over here. So I wanna tell you an image that just hit me, and I'll just leave this to you to consider. I was thinking about Jesus entering into our pain at the cross, and we often talk about how Jesus endured God's wrath, drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And the image of the hailstorm grabbed a hold of my heart. And I, I submit this to you for what, take it for what it's worth. That when Jesus was on the cross, I began to picture hail coming down and hitting his holy, righteous body. And we have the crown of thorns and we have the number of times that he was hit with the whip. And we know that by his wounds we are healed and but I was thinking that when he was on the cross and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was picturing the hail mixed with fire coming down on the Savior, him taking the wrath instead of us. And I want to leave you with a, some good news because that's what the gospel is. That when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, in one sense you could say he's taking the hail of God's judgment upon himself so that I could be sheltered in him, amen? Amen. So when we come to the Lord's table, that's what I want to remember, that my Savior took the hail. He took the judgment. He covered me so that I wouldn't be judged. He just says, take refuge. Heed the warning, flee to the Savior. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our Passover lamb. We're gonna get to this in a few messages and we're gonna watch the beautiful way that you've painted this together. The lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. His blood shed for us. His body pierced for us. He took the wrath. He endured the hail of judgment for us. Thank you, Lord. If you don't know him yet, this would be a great time to just say, Lord Jesus, cover me. I deserve judgment. I know it. I've sinned against you. I fall short. We all do. But thank you that you entered into my pain. Thank you that you took the hail of God's wrath for me. Hide me. Be my hiding place. Shelter me. Be my refuge. He's faithful to save. Tell him that you believe he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Repent of your sin and trust in him today and him alone for your salvation. He alone can save.